0: What does a happy person do? How do they live? This is the question the psalmist will attempt to answer for us this morning in Psalm chapter 1. This is a wisdom psalm, and so in it we are presented with stuff that looks a little bit like wisdom literature. And this particular psalm is going to invite us or challenge us with a question at the end. It's not explicit in the text, but we're meant to arrive at it. And the question is, am I going to live according to the way of the blessed or the happy, the righteous man? Or will I live according to the way of the wicked? Now, that's the question it's kind of asking us. And the, the argument in the text is that the happy person or the blessed person is the one who delights the in God's word, or the law of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord there in verse 2. And so you can see that our main idea is that the happy person delights in God's word. Therefore, I'm going to exhort you to delight in God's word by reading it, thinking about it, memorizing it, and praying it. You can see our outline there before you will go, about the text through it verse by verse in two parts. We'll talk about the way of the happy and the righteous person and the way of the wicked. Let's pray, and we'll get started this morning. Father, we ask that you would quiet our minds. You would help us to open our ears so that we might hear That we might believe, that we might obey. God, we ask that you would help us to see you from a new perspective this morning. Pray that you would fill our hearts with holy affection for Christ Jesus, our Lord. In whose name we pray. Amen. So, Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. How happy is the one? Now, I know traditional translations, if you've got your KJV or most all of them, begin this psalm Blessed is the man, right? Um, the word blessed actually comes from a, a different Hebrew term. There's a different Hebrew term for that. Um, it works here, but I think it, it makes it a little fuzzier what the psalmist is saying. So we always make this really hard and fast distinction between like blessedness and happiness, and, and they're, they're kind of close together in meaning. At any rate, the word, if we just translate it woodenly, should actually be happy. And so I'm, I'm glad that the CSB did that for us here I'm going to switch between the two throughout the sermon just because that's how I think of it in my mind. And so if it helps you to go blessed there, be my guest. Uh, if, if not, you can go with happy. But that's what, I'm, that's what I'm referring to is this person in chapter one, verse one, is the happy person. Blessed is the man. Happy is the person. Happy is the one. And that, that piques our interest right away. The happy person does what? Who is it that's happy? Right, as I said earlier, this is a question that, is of great interest to us and to our culture. There are hundreds and hundreds of articles and books on the topic of happiness. It's like 23 Ways to be Happier, the, the Happiest Project, happiest Happiness Project. Uh, there were any number of other titles I came across this week. And all of them seem to put an emphasis on uh, changing particular habits and and looking within to yourself, changing thinking a little bit. That's not what the psalmist is going to lead us to do. Yes, he will suggest some habits that might change. But he's going to to ask us, he's going to say, the happy person isn't the one who's, who's looking within to find their inner goodness and bring out their greatest potential. He's going to tell us not to look within, but to look without. Not to look to self, but to look to the God we were made to worship. So he begins his, his description. Happy is the one, blessed is the man. We're going to actually see it as three things. He gives us a negative description of the happy person, a positive description of the happy person, and then a metaphor of the happy person to drive his point home. And so we see how happy is the one, blessed is the man who does not, so here's our negative description starting, does not walk in the counsel or advice of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seats or company of mockers. See, the happy person is distinct. This is what the happy person does not do. And you see there's kind of a progression here, right? The person is walking in the counsel, right, of the wicked. He's listening to wicked advice, bad advice, ungodly advice. And then he he's, he's, goes from walking to standing, standing still. This is actually a, a bad translation. Um, it, it's what the Hebrew says. Uh, but it's a bad translation because when you stand in someone's way in English, you're hindering them, Right? As if uh, you're trying to get out of the back of the church door right after service, you're ready to get to lunch, and um, there I am standing in your way, probably talking to somebody else, and, and you are thinking, He is standing in my way. He is hindering my exit from the church. You see, to stand in someone's way in Hebrew, it means you do what they do, you live the way that they live. And so what we're seeing is, is this person is, is listening to the counsel of the wicked. And then they're, they're living according to the way of the wicked. And then we see this, this final part of the progression. They sit in the seat of scoffers. And so you, you've got someone that's listened to ungodly counsel, lived an ungodly, starts living an ungodly life, And then it it culminates in an outright disdain for God's people, for holiness. That's what a mocker does, or a scoffer, right? You've reached the status of scoffer when you kind of sit down, since sitting, you're settled on this way of thinking, you're kind of sitting in your easy chair and and looking down your nose, sneering at those bigoted, narrow-minded, backwoods hypocritical Christians, right? This is the progression. The the righteous person is not listening to ungodly counsel, not living in a way that is ungodly. It's not settled on sitting in an outright rebellion against the Lord. This is what the righteous person does not do. You see, the righteous person is distinct, doesn't think like the world or the wicked. Instead, the righteous person obeys Romans 12 two. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may learn and discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. See, one of the major things in this psalm, it's all about how we think. We one that's going to to think like the wicked or like the righteous. I also thought it was really interesting uh, to see the contrast between the person that would be walking in the way of the wicked, walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the pathway of sinners, sitting in the seat of mockers. Let's contrast this with the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Listen to what God says to his people. Hear, O Israel! The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be as a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house. And on your city gates, you can see these two. I put them together so you can see that there is a totality of experience involved here. Kind of a, a comprehensive worldview. And what the righteous person does is it lives according to God's word rather than the worldview of the world, and of the wicked. It is a distinct lifestyle. The righteous person, the happy person, does not entertain wickedness. I also wanted to point this out at the front end. I forgot, so I'm going to do it now. But the happy or the blessed person in this psalm is also the one that's walking on the way of the righteous. You see that in verse 6 and in verse 1? That same person. I think sometimes we have this wrong-headed idea that, that... Happiness is over here, and holiness is over here. So that they're opposed to each other. So that like, the, the, if I'm holier, the more I obey God's word, the less happy I'll be. Maybe you've said it, I've said it before, right? maybe to my kids. I don't want you to be happy, I want you to be holy. These two things are the same. The happier you will be, Sorry, let me mess that. The holier you are, the happier you will be. If you have really received the blessing of God, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then, then you are the blessed person, the happy person, then the more and more you're going to walk according to the way of righteousness. These two things are not opposed. And so the happy person is the holy person is the blessed person, is the righteous person, and that person does not walk according to the counsel of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. This person lives a distinct life, a life that's set apart for the Lord Jesus Christ. What kind of life are you living? Do you entertain the counsel of the wicked? Are you walking, standing in the way of sinners? Or perhaps you've even found yourself in outright rebellion against the Holy God who made you. Brother and sister, I exhort you to repent. Return to the Lord. Put your faith in Christ the truly righteous one. Indeed, none of us, none of us are righteous in and of ourselves. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. We merely come to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive his mercy by the empty, outstretched hands of faith. Come to the Lord Jesus and say, I'm done with my sin. I'm following you. And he makes us right with God. So that the way of the wicked, the seat among the scoffers, all of that is no longer palatable to us. Instead, the taste that we had for sin and for the world, it changes. What used to feel like honey on our tongues turns to gravel. We have a a new taste, new desires. So that the word of God becomes sweet to us the happy person does not follow the way of the world and of the wicked and positively what does the happy person do verse two his tastes have changed instead his delight is in the law of the lord or in the lord's instruction the word there's torah It can refer to one part of the Bible, just one law of God, or the whole Pentateuch, or the whole of the Scriptures. Here it refers to the whole of the Scriptures, anywhere we find God's Word. Instead, the happy person's delight is in the law of the Lord. And this is really interesting because in Hebrew poetry, especially in the Psalms, you you see that there is a parallelism that's built in. Right? It typically teaches us what's going on. It helps to emphasize um, and get the point across. And, and so what, kind of what, let me, what we expect here is antithetic parallelism. That sounds really fancy, but let me try to show you what I mean. So we see... Uh, Happy is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. What we expect is, rather, blessed rather, is the man who walks in the counsel of the righteous, stands in the way of the godly, and who sits in the seat of the praising, or or, or something like that. You see how they're different? That's not not what we get here. Instead, we get something unexpected. Unexpected. We have a, a break, an intentional break, from that literary pattern. And it's, it's so that the, the author can put the spotlight on this one thing. It's as if he's saying, hey, this is what the righteous person doesn't do, doesn't do, doesn't do. This one thing is what the righteous does. This one thing is what the happy person does. There's one criterion you need. And if you have this, you have everything. So what is it? His delight is in the Lord's instruction. In dawn it he meditates day and night. This one thing, we delight in God's instruction is what the happy person does. The happy person delights in the law of the Lord because to delight in the word of God is to delight in God himself. It is in God's word. It's through God's word that he has revealed himself to us. It is in his word that he tells us what he is like. It's in his word that he tells us how we can know him and love him and worship him. It's in his word that he tells to us the greatest story in all of human history. The story about how the creature rebelled against the creator. How you and I sought to de-God God and put ourselves in his place on the throne. The story about how instead of executing us on the spot, made a promise. It was progressively fulfilled throughout the pages of Scripture. It was ultimately came to, to pass with the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ who is our Lord and our King, who was the Word, is the Word, in the flesh, the fullness of God in a man. We get the story about how he went to Calvary's cross and died the death that you and I deserve to die. We learn that on the cross, he took the full brunt of, of God's wrath against sin, that on the cross he was damned so that we, by faith in him, might become God's delight. You ever recognize that? That when you you repent of your sin and you put your faith in Jesus, God delights in you. He looks at you as he did Jesus. This is my son, this is my daughter, with whom I am well pleased. This is what God's word tells us about. It tells us about the God who loves us and who gave himself for us. The God who hates evil, just like you and I do. The God who hates suffering, just like you and I do. The God who hates death, just like you and I do. We learn about the God who's defeated death who offers resurrection and eternal life in his presence to all who come to him in faith. We learn about our Lord Jesus Christ's promise to return and make everything sad untrue. This is, this is good news. This is a word that's worth delighting in. This is a, a God who is a never-ending source of joy, a fountain of that can satisfy our thirsts forever and ever. When you realize, when we read this word and we learn about who our God is and how he has loved us and how he has chosen to delight in all those who come to Christ Jesus, we cannot help but to delight in him back. We cannot help but to love him back. Right? First John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us us, and that's in the context of loving one another within the church, but it also demonstrates that the reason we love God is because he loved us. There was nothing lovely in you or me that caused God to save us. We were dead in our sins without hope, and he brought us grace, gave us the gift of faith. We can delight in him. When you, when you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, all the inferior joys of the world, they become very small. And they are supplanted by superior happiness that comes from knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. So that you can say, along with the psalmist in verse 7 of chapter 4, you God, have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. They might be having a a big festival with all kinds of flourishing, but the joy, the happiness that you've given to me, God, is greater. We can say with the psalmist. Chapter 119, verses 1 and 2. How happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the Lord's instruction. Happy are those who keep his decree and seek him with all their heart. God changes us so that we desire him, so that we delight in him, and we delight in him by delighting in his word. Part of delighting in God's word is knowing what it says. The psalmist delights in God's word by meditating on it day and night. Brothers and sisters, if we do not give ourselves to God's word, if we do not, well, if we don't give ourselves to it, we won't delight in it. And if we don't give ourselves to it, if we aren't delighting in God's word, then we won't, we won't be delighting in God. We will find our joy getting smaller and smaller as the days go on. If we don't study the scriptures, if we don't worship God according to how he's revealed himself to us, we will ultimately make him in our own image, according to our own preferences. And again, that's a God who exists only in our imagination. We want to worship the God who is, the God who has spoken to us. We want to delight in his word. We want to seek him in his word. And part of how the psalmist says to do this is by meditating on his word day and night. And the word meditate, uh, I think most of us think of Eastern meditation when we hear this word. In Eastern meditation, Eastern thought you you empty your mind is the goal of meditation, right? Home, just think of of nothing. Maybe you, you chant sometimes to make sure your mind is clear. Biblical meditation is the exact opposite of that. The idea is to fill your mind, to to think deeply on God's word. The the word for for meditate actually means uh, to to mutter or to murmur, like to yourself. So you get this picture of somebody, you know, just talking to themselves under their breath. Maybe past those people, maybe you live with one, uh, and it's like, that. she's a little crazy, talking to herself all the time, or or, he's a little crazy. But the idea is that you would be talking to yourself with the words of God. And this is a people, I think the image is really neat. They didn't have the scriptures readily available to them. And so, what did they do? They committed it to memory. So, you can imagine a Hebrew, you know, just reciting to themselves, maybe the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all soul, with all your strength. Just getting this into themselves. Perhaps a more poignant image would be uh, of cows, right? We have cows right across the street here. Um, I'm not great on the study of cows. I'm sure there's a a better word for it. But I I think that they have like four-ish stomachs, give or take. I think it's four. Um, But if you've ever seen a cow eat, what what will happen is uh, he puts his head down, right? Picks up some of that grass, brings his head up, and that jaw goes, chews it up, and then you see the, Mm -hmm. right, down in. And if you watch and you sway a little bit, what happens is eventually, back up into his mouth, starts chewing again, right? Call it chewing the cud, I think. This is, this is the image we should have of what it means to meditate on scripture, Th- that we would be thinking deeply on it, that we would be digesting it. And so the exhortation right here is to, to, to be cows, right? I want you to be Christian cows where you are constantly digesting and feeding on the word of God. And you say, okay, okay, okay. I get that practically, but how, how, do I, I mean, how do I do this? What does it look like? Really simply, read your Bible. It might seem like a lazy application to some of you, but it's an important one. Far too many Christians do not read their Bibles. And they do not know what the God they claim to worship is like at all. And instead, they allow counsel of the wicked to inform their ideas about God. Friends, read your Bibles. Read them. A lot. And enjoy doing it. Don't just do it to, oh, I've got to check this off. It's good to have spiritual disciplines. Yes, do that. Make it a priority. Start there. But do it just—it's it, appalling to me when I, I think about. Sometimes I'll have conversations with people. Hey, do—are you, you a Christian? Well, yeah, of course, you know. And you know, I've—I've I've taken up my cross. I'm following Jesus. He's the most important thing in my life. He is the Lord of my life. How often do you read your Bible? Well, I'm just really busy. Really busy. And so, you know, just every once in a while, when I get around to it, Lord of your life, huh? Really? I think the only, the only question that gets a more negative response on that one is when I ask a Christian where they go to church. Well, you know, I'm spiritual but not religious. Really? That's this is, your, your Christianity looks really different than the New Testament. And I think it stems from not reading your Bible. Read it. Learn it. You need a Bible reading plan to get started. There are, I mean, just Google, there are billions of Bible reading plans out there. If you don't like a Bible reading plan, just start in the Gospel of John or you could just start in Leviticus, though that slows a lot of people down. Um, we're gonna be there next week, Lord willing. Uh, you could come to the Psalms, but, but, but read, read. And don't stop there. Think about what you read. Turn it over in your mind. I think something that's been really helpful to me is when I read a section of scripture, I'll, I'll take you know, verbatim a verse, part of a verse, sometimes, and I'll just put that in my pocket to think about for the rest of the day. So, so for example, um, I've been reading through Exodus recently, so one of the ones I did was, uh, the Lord is my banner, right? Y'all remember that story? Uh, uh, the Israelites get attacked, and Moses has his arms up, and they keep falling down, and so they set him on a stone, and the other two dudes hold his arms up, and they have the victory, and at the end, they're celebrating and say, the Lord is my banner, so I just have that in my pocket. and I've been pulling it out, pull it out during the day, earlier in the week. And what, what does it mean that God is my banner? He's my king, and that He's fighting for me. God, praise you! Thank you for being my my provider and my my protector. Right, and just turning it over all day. You can do the same thing. Uh, Psalm twenty three: The Lord is my shepherd. What does it mean that the Lord is my shepherd? That that He cares for me. He loves me. He's going to supply my every need. It means that I listen to His voice. I do what He says. We can do it uh, with sermons or a larger portion of scripture. We were in Acts uh, 27 a couple weeks ago, and Paul has that shipwreck, and he ends up on Malta, and one of the things we said uh, to summarize kind of that section was that God gets his people where he wants them, and he gives them what they need along the way. God provides it. You just take that little phrase, bundle it up, put it in your pocket, write it down on a piece of notepaper, and literally put it in your pocket, type it into your phone, and you take it with you you think about it. You process it. You learn what God is saying in his word. And you don't stop there. Memorize some of God's word. This gets a lot of of people hung up. It gets me hung up. It's hard. It's hard work. But, as mama used to say, anything worth doing is hard. It's worth it. Do it. I mean, you can you can start somewhere. Just take verses that you're really familiar with. Start with this psalm, right? Like you've got verse two down, right? I've said it enough times. You're halfway there. It's a pretty short psalm. Memorize it, and don't don't stop with just memorizing God's word. Pray God's word. Pray it. This it, I, I often recognize that Christians will say, I have a hard time praying. I don't know how to pray. And my response is typically, God has showed us how to pray. Have you seen the Psalms? This book, it's got full of hymns and poems and prayers. One of the most effective ways to pray is to pray God's word back to him. This just makes sense, doesn't it? Like, after all, how does a child learn to speak? Right? If, if somebody adopts a kid from China and they're in their infancy and they come home, you the know, husband doesn't look at his wife and go, you know, honey, we're going to have to learn Mandarin because in a couple years, little Sally here, she's going to start talking. We're going to want to understand her. Right? No. No, that's not what happens. Kids learn to speak by listening and then repeating Back. To their parents. Likewise, we learn to communicate with God and to pray to God by listening to his word and praying it back to him. I typically try to model this when I'm reading scripture for you during the first part of the service. If you, if you haven't noticed, start paying attention a little bit. We'll read a psalm, we'll read a portion of scripture, and then my prayer, hopefully, is going to try to go right along with that. Right, this morning, we did 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed, God-inspired, useful correcting, rebuking, and teaching. Right? And then I prayed, God, help us to see the sufficiency of your word, to love your word, to correct one another with your word, to exhort one another with your word, to teach with your word. Help us to love your word. And you also notice the readings are typically tied to the sermon. And this particular sermon tells us to delight in God's word. So we want to delight in God's word. by Reading it, thinking about it, memorizing, praying it. And so you see how all of this works together. I almost picture it like one of those, like with arrows kind of in a circle diagrams that may not be helpful for you. But, but, but God speaks in the, in the scriptures. We hear the scriptures. We read the scriptures. We think about the scriptures. We delight in his word. And then we pray them back up to God. And you see, see what's happening is you are having a conversation with the God who has made you and who has saved you to himself. You see that? In the Bible, God speaks to us. And when we pray, we speak to God. This is how a dynamic conversation takes place. This is how our relationship with God grows. Really, in a dry time spiritually, yes, that happens. But diagnostic question number one, are you delighting in the word? Are you listening to what God is saying? Are you speaking back to him? Are you praying? Are you gathering together with God's people and talking with them about God's word? Are you asking others, what's God teaching you this week? Hey, and this is a new one, you guys. What phrase are you meditating on today? Right? What's your phrase today? What's been your phrase this week? We want to be a people who delights in God's word. This is what the happy person does. The happy person has gotten a taste of God. Has tasted and seen that the Lord is good and is blessed as a result. So on this thing, gives us a metaphor for this happy, blessed, righteous person. In verse three, he's like a tree. Planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. This is such a great image. So you got the, the tree, its roots go down deep, and then it's by this wonderful water source, a flowing stream. And so it's bearing all kinds of fruit. Have You've been around this kind of person, right? You've been around the, the prosperous person that is rooted in the word of God. The kind of person that when you see them, you feel refreshed and blessed after you've seen them. Like you've taken some fruit off of their branches and eaten it yourself. You feel nourished. Now, I love these kind of people. Some of you are this way, right? Where you see and I feel great after I saw you. Like, I don't even know what I did, I just... Bumped into him, and said, what's up? And I feel better now. We want to be a, a church. What would a church be like? What if all of us were this way? You I know, mean, I'll confess. I can be grumpy and sinful. But there, there should be no room in God's church for grumpiness. Like, how something has gone wrong when our posture as a church and as Christians is primarily one of crossed arms and furrowed brows and pursed lips, we have the best news in the world. There's no reason for us not to be happy. There's no reason for us not to display the deep and lasting joy that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. He saved us. This should make us like a tree that's planted by flowing streams that, that bears its fruit in season. And, you see and whose leaf does not wither. Whose leaf does not wither. Whatever it does prospers. This is not a promise, as some prosperity teachers might have you think, that as long as I do this, then God will give me this. Right? You've maybe heard that before. Believe enough, and God will give you exactly what you want. That's a lie. It's false teaching. the, The prosperity here is taking place in the realm of metaphor, and the point is that the person that is tapped into and delighting in the Word of God is always going to have signs of vitality and life. Maybe we could say it in a New Testament way. The person who is united to Jesus Christ by faith will bear the fruit of repentance, will bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You will see these things in the life of that person. They will be a prospering person. Right, that's what this note about whose leaf does not wither. It means that when drought comes, when difficult seasons come, this tree stays alive. Its leaf does not wither. When someone gets cancer, it doesn't wither. When a loved one dies doesn't wither. When someone leaves the faith, discourages it, doesn't wither. When it's mocked by the ungodly, does not wither. When it's scorned for faithfulness to Christ Jesus, doesn't wither. When the job is lost, when there's not enough money, when aging ravages the body, This leaf does not wither. It prospers because it's rooted in the Word of God. It's drinking from a well that satisfies. This tree, I'm going to change the analogy, this branch has been grafted in to Christ Jesus who is the true vine. This is a person who abides in Christ and has joy. So You see, the, the prosperity here takes place in that realm and I think it also points forward to something ultimate. This is a prosperity that's bigger than materialism. It's bigger than the here and the now. It's as big, it's the size of the new heavens and the new earth. And Let me show you why I think that. It's because this metaphor for the righteous person contrasts with the metaphor for the wicked person in verse 4, right? Look, look, the wicked are not like this. Instead, so wicked are not like a tree, they're not rooted to the word of God, they don't delight, they're not going to bear fruit in season. Instead, the wicked are not like this, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Chaff is foreign to me, at least. Maybe... Some of you are old enough to remember when chaff was a thing that you were really familiar with. I'm not. Uh, I guess it, it, it's kind of like the outside part of a seed. And so you would thresh it, you would throw the chaff up in the air, and the heavy seed would fall down and the wind would blow the chaff away. The best I could think about it was maybe like a banana. Right? You peel the, the peel away, you keep the banana, and you throw the peel out because it's not worth anything. Right? The image here, though, is that the, the happy person, the righteous person, is rooted into the word of God. Flourishing. Whereas the wicked person is not. It's like chaff, rootless, weightless, lifeless. And then, in case we missed the author's point, in verse 5: Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. See what he's saying? The person who is happy, is rooted in the word of the Lord, is rooted and tied to, united to, from a Christian perspective, that's how we're going to read the Psalms, Jesus Christ. The wicked are not like this. They will be blown away like chaff. They're not going to stand up in the judgment. And so you see the context of the prosperity in verse 3 is the same context of the Ruin in verse 4. The context is judgment. See, what, what the Psalm is telling us is ultimately God is going to prosper his people. There is no act of faithfulness that you have done that God has not recorded and that he will not reward you for. God knows. And on the other side, there is no amount of earthly gain that is worth anything in the sight of God. There are plenty of wicked people that seem, seem to be in this life as trees that are flourishing. But as Psalm 37 tells us, we'll look and then one day we'll look again and they will be gone. It's a prosperity that God gives to those who are his people. And the judgment of the wicked in verse 5, it's just, he's just saying there's no leg for them to stand on. They will be rightly and justly condemned. They will be cut off from the assembly. They'll be cut off from the people of God. This is a devastating end. Hell is not relational. It's isolation. Under the wrath of God and away from the wonderful community that is known among his people. Verse 6 grounds the whole psalm, tells us why this is the case. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. The Lord knows, know here is, is more relational, right? It's Yadah in Hebrew. There's knowing, and then there's, there's knowing, right? And, uh, This is not knowing. God knows his people intimately. He watches over the way of the righteous. And therefore, those people are going to be blessed and happy because they're delighting in his word, they're delighting in him, and he is going to ensure that they are happy and blessed. Whereas the wicked, the way of the wicked, it leads leads to ruin. And so you can see the question that the psalm leads us to contemplate. Which way am I following? Which way am I going? Am I on the righteous fruit-bearing path? Or am I on the path that leads to ruin? Anytime I read a psalm like this, I if I'm being honest with myself, and I think of my sin, I go, God, yes, I, I try to live according to your way, but man, I, just, I feel so wicked. At times when I, I do listen to the world. And I remind myself that what's, what puts me, or anyone for that matter, on the path of the righteous, what sustains me, it's not my own ability. But the Lord Jesus Christ Jesus Christ is the truly righteous one. He's the one who, without fail, delighted in the Lord's instruction. He's the one who deserved all the blessings of God. And instead, he was nailed to a tree where he poured out his blood so that chaff like you and me could bear fruit. you're not a Christian, I implore you, come to this God who has loved you and has given himself for you. If You are a Christian. Church, behold your God. He is the one who has saved you from your sin and promises you a prosperity that will never end. Indeed, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and we our as people let's pray father we thank you for your kindness to us we thank you that instead of giving us hell as we deserve you sent jesus to take your wrath in our place on the cross so that we might have heaven so that we might have relationship with you and your people Indeed, by his wounds we have been healed. Thank you that he didn't stay dead, but is risen again. We thank you that he is ruling even now, ordering all things in the universe according to his good will. We thank you that he is returning to make all things new, to wipe every tear from the eye. And to him we give all the honor, glory, worship, and praise.